in many ways, schools are feeling irrelevant. They're looking at it going, I, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. I'm really interested in this idea of oral futures with schools. Like, what are your futures? What stories, if you can project down into 20, 25, 30 years from now, if it was the best that you could do, what would it look like? And I think once we have start having those conversations, the work gets a lot easier. Welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Will Richardson. Will was a guest a couple of years ago on the podcast, and since that episode, I had the chance to get to know Will a bit better. I've been part of his webinars, he's hosted some Coconut Thinking webinars, and we've exchanged some ideas about the changing place of school, the role of education, and specifically its connections to the wider system. I wanted to get another conversation in with Will, specifically about how his thinking has changed, because his writing has changed. You can tell there's a different tone into what he had before, certainly when I got to know Will five years ago when he was hosting the Modern Learners podcast. Now he's the co-founder of the Big Questions Institute, where they ask questions without necessarily looking for the answers so much as to move the thinking, which is something that really resonates with me. So when we talk about schools with Will, we're talking about the future, we're talking about the present, we're talking about how both are combined. We're talking in this episode about stories and how we create stories now about the future and working towards those stories to try to bring about the futures that we want rather than get bogged down in the present. Check out our website, www.coconut-thinking.com. That's www.coconut-thinking.com. And in the meantime, I'll make space for my conversation with Will. Hi, Will. It's uh, absolutely wonderful to see you. Uh, and I am really excited to speak with you because as I was just saying, you're, you're sh- Thinking has shifted quite a bit. Your your writing has shifted, or at least that's the sense that I get from the stuff that you put out. Uh, when you were back at Modern Learners, you had a certain narrative, and I'm not saying that you completely went away from that, but there's other things on your horizon. So what's been going on over the last couple of years in your mind and heart? First of all, Benjamin, great to see you too. Thanks again for the opportunity. Always great to have a conversation with you. Um, and thanks for the question. It's It's been kind of interesting, my career ever since I left my gig as a high school teacher back uh, 17 years ago now. Um, It feels like every four or five years, my kind of view on the world or my thinking evolves uh, a bit. And so, which I think is a good thing, actually. It feels like it's a learning thing, to be honest. And um, I think part of the shift that I'm uh, feeling these days is partly due to your writing, actually, and a whole bunch of other people who have shown me or introduced me to regenerative thinking, regenerative education, you know, that lens on the world, which has been really interesting. Um, I've I've connected to a number of other communities where they're thinking a lot about the future in some very interesting ways that um, hadn't really been in my, you know, kind of my worldview. Um, and I, 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 I think I've always been interested in how what's happening in the world out here can be thought of through an education lens. So if this is happening here, what does that mean for education, right? And um, that keeps it kind of fresh and interesting, obviously, because um, I'm not I'm not thinking a lot about how to make education better, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I'm thinking a lot about how to make it different. And that's because the world is different today from the way it was even five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 100 years ago when 
or 150 years ago when schools pretty much became the mainstream way that we educate kids. So I don't know. It's it's uh, it's interesting. There's obviously a lot of challenges in the world right now that are becoming more acute that I think need to be a little bit more urgent in the conversations that schools are having. And so as much as I can do to facilitate those and to bring those into the into those conversations, um, I think that's that's kind of what I find most interesting right now is how do I how can I provoke people uh, without scaring them? which has always been the tension kind of in my work, right? Because I've always tried to point out to people the ways in which schools are in many ways antithetical to learning. Um, but now uh, some of those global contexts, some of those shifts that I think everyone is experiencing to some extent uh, are changing the whole conversation around education, new technologies, obviously AI and, and all of those things that um, people in schools are kind of going, what do we do? You know, like, what does this mean? Um, and so, yeah, um, I think as long as uh, as long as I can um, tap into or or uh, connect to those ideas that make schools say, what does this mean? Um, I think that's that's probably going to be the focus of my work, trying to help, you know, engage those conversations. I don't have answers to most of this, if any of it. Right. But. As you know, the Big Questions Institute, right? I think we're asking some pretty important questions right now. And so let's talk about some of these questions, but rather let's talk about the questions that schools are asking now. Without going too much into the pre-COVID, post-COVID piece and throwing in there some AI as well and, and you know, ecological breakdown, you know, just, just the little things that, that are there. What, what are some <laughs> of the questions that schools are asking you straight off the bat <laughs> those little things like you know <laughs> climate change and ai um <laughs> yeah um well I, I i think there's a sense a growing sense of irrelevance um i think that a lot of schools a lot of educators in general are kind of looking at the world going you know the world is in dire stress in in an ecological sense and we're not doing much about that the technologies are changing in some existential ways when it comes to creating and connecting and doing all those things. And yet we're not really doing much with that. You know, we're not really, that's really not our focus. And I think a lot of them are saying, how do we, how do we shift away from those traditional mindsets that we have about education? How do we tell new stories and how do we become more relevant or how do we at least stay relevant with the types of things that kids obviously are going to need to thrive in their lives as much as we can discern what that is even at this point right so i think it's you know and and i think there's a difference between asking the question and then being willing to actually unpack it and live the answer that you come to that's the hard part right um because the answers don't are the answers are not found in the past, <laughs> the answers are not found in what we've done. And so um, it's, uh, you know, I use that Margaret Mead quote a lot, you know, where um, you, we're not going to we're not going to find the answers to our future pathways in what we've done in the past. It doesn't mean we can't learn from history. I'm not saying that. But the technologies have changed. The context have changed. She has a great quote in, in that uh, book where she talks about you know, the different different cultures that we're going to be living in where she says something, I'm going to get it wrong, but she says, you know, elders used to be able to say to their children, um, you know, I've 
I understand this world and this is what you need to do in order to be successful. Whereas now kids look at their parents and say, you've never lived in my world. <laughs> so, you know, how is it that you think that you can actually guide me into my future? And again, that's a really bad paraphrase, but, but it's true. You know, I, I do think that in many ways, schools are feeling irrelevant. They're looking at it going, I, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And so, again, not that there are easy answers to that, but you have to begin to, to ask those questions and you have to begin to really think about, well, who are we? You know, what are we doing? And, and is our work aligned with what our children need? And then um, if you can get to the point where you see some of those places where you are misaligned, then that's when a lot of schools come to us and say, how can we get in alignment? How can we get coherent? How can we really um, begin to live what we all know we need to do, but has been difficult in many ways to live because of traditional narratives, experiences, all that type of stuff that, you know, the elders carry with them. So, um, yeah, interesting times for sure. And um, I think that those schools and, and those people who are willing to be provoked a little bit, they, they're the ones that are, are knocking on our door and saying, hey, can you help us just kind of blow this out and, and really help us think about what we need to be talking about, asking and all that. And then let's see if we can develop some different stories and narratives about what happens in our future. And developing stories and, and narratives is different than seeking answers. And I guess when I think of schools in a traditional sense, that idea is, well, we have a question, we have an answer, we have a question, we have an answer, but this isn't about that anymore, is it? It's about those stories that you mentioned and, and how those stories unravel, get written, change. Yeah, and, and so a lot of the work now that we're doing and that I'm really focused in is that kind of imaginative piece that allows us to write new stories about who we are, um, what we what we are for the kids that we serve, for the communities that we serve, and what that looks like into the future, right? Um, I'm kind of toying with this idea where, you know how people do oral histories all the time, right? Where they're um, recording or they're writing about, you know, the things in the past. I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of oral futures with schools. Like, what are your futures? What stories, if you can project down into 20, 25, 30 years from now, Let's write some stories from that vantage point. What happened here? Who who did you become? Who did who did you want to become as a school, as a community, whatever? And let's write the history of that future, which is kind of an interesting, you know, play on words. But still, I think that and and this is not me. This is a whole bunch of people now who are saying if we are going to overcome the challenges that we face in the world right now. And if we are going to take advantage of the opportunities that we have, and there are many, by the way, there are many opportunities that are popping up all over the place. But if we're going to do either one of those things, we better start flexing our imagination muscles much more than we have in the past. That it has to be, in the words of one one person who is, is kind of uh, someone who I follow really closely, says, <clears throat> we have to use our imagination as often as we eat breakfast. Um, you know, it's got to be something that we just make part of our routines because old solutions are not going to solve the problems we have, nor are they going to lead us to really take advantage of what's possible now. And so, um, you know, I, I'm really interested in how do we build futures literacies in school communities, number one, 
But how do we begin to really articulate aspirational futures for our schools that we yearn for? And that's a really important piece of this, right? It's it's not just, oh, yeah, I'd like to get there. It's like, no, I I must, we must get to this future that we that we aspire to, right? And then, and then how do you build cultures that allow you to move every day a little bit closer to that vision, you know, and, and it's, it's really interesting work. Um, and it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, most people don't really exercise that imag- imagination muscle very much. There aren't, again, I know I'm babbling here, but <laughs> there's, you know, a lot of people talking about how do we build imagination infrastructures in schools or in organizations, you know, and there aren't any. And so the danger is, is that if we don't begin to imagine our own aspirational futures for education, then we're going to be living in the Sal Khan future for education or the Elon Musk future for education or Mark Zuckerberg or someone else who is imagining all this stuff and then just able, because we don't have any idea or we don't have a vision, we'll just say, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's do con amigo, for instance, right? Because that's just easier. And yet I don't think anyone really wants con amigo to be the future of education. Part of it, of course, is the fact that the arts have been cut for years and now there's no way to kind of have that be there for the imagination. Um Absolutely. with the, with the, with the yep. you know, everything's so much about science and math and so forth. Which is not saying that those aren't places where you can exercise imagination, but without the arts, it's a muscle that's really hard to develop. Well, without the arts and without play, and you know, we have we have taken play away um from kids uh over the last couple of decades to the extent where you know, there are some schools where literally kids get maybe 20 minutes to do 20 minutes of free time during the day. And then and, and you know, in, in kind of our circles where we talk about regenerative education, and all that um, and just getting outside and being in nature and all of the benefits from playing in nature, not just for your imagination, but for your mental health, for your physical health, you know, for all of that, we've taken all of that away in schools. And yet, when we ask, and we ask this question all the time, because it's one of our, you know, quote, unquote, big questions, when we ask school communities, whether it's parents, teachers, students, what's sacred about school? (laughs) Those are the types of answers that you get, you know, that our kids are healthy, that they're happy, that they have fun, that, you know, all of those things. And yet, when you try to Kind of, you know, then measure the extent to which you're doing the things that you really say are sacred to you, are most important to you. In many cases, they're undercut by the systems and the practices and the structures that, um, you know, we've employed in schools for for centuries almost. So it's a it's a very again it's an it's an interesting conversation. It's a frustrating one too. We know the answers. We know what we need to do. But we just, for whatever reason, again, whether it's because expectations, external expectations, narratives, you know, um, habits, whatever, um, basically, uh, we make it really difficult to make that happen. And I love this idea that you mentioned at the very beginning. It's not about making education better. It's about making it different because better means that you're still kind of 
better as opposed to what, which are the old measures. Different means a different narrative. And if we're going to say that a certain way that might be more progressive or whatever word we might want to use here, more reach, I mean, it doesn't matter, but we're still looking at academics and about being able to do mathematical algorithms with a pencil. Well, well that's just not what we're, what the measuring is. It's, it's something different. Um, how to use computers in order to save time to be able to go outside or, or whatever it might be, but completely different measures. Yeah, I mean, to me, um, kind of a phrase that I've landed on is that our kids are going to have to learn their way through their lives, right? So, I mean, it's lifelong learning, but I kind of, I just like the way that kind of rolls. Um, they're going to have to learn their way through their lives. Um, there is no amount of knowledge preparation that we can do in schools right now that will help, that will suffice. They're going to have to be constantly learning. And so, and I think, again, a lot of schools and a lot of organizations, international organizations are focusing now on skills and literacies and dispositions of learning rather than accruing a lot of content knowledge and, you know, that type of stuff in school. Um, it changes the nature of teaching. It changes the nature of expertise, certainly. I mean, but, you know, if you ask the question, which would you rather your teachers be right now, content experts or learning experts? I don't think that's much of a choice, to be honest with you. If if our teachers aren't learners, if they're deep, not deeply knowledgeable about how humans learn and the types of skills that humans need to continually learn, um, then we're in trouble. You know, if it's just going to be like you said, um, you got to know this, 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 and this, because that's what's in the curriculum. Um, and go, so we're going to send you out into the world with that in your head, but we're not going to prepare you to learn this, 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 and this on your own when you need, you know what I'm saying, right? So um, that's a real, that's a real problem right now. Um, and I've been saying this for 20 years. Teachers are everywhere. Content is everywhere. Technologies are everywhere. Not totally equitable. I get it. But still, the arc of that is that you're going to have access to more teachers, to more technologies, to more content and knowledge. And if you're not a learner in those environments, if you're waiting for someone to tell you what you need to learn, when you need to learn it, how you need to learn it, how you're going to be assessed on it, well, good luck. I mean, seriously, good luck, because it's just not the way the world works anymore. And this brings us back to this word regeneration, which is a word that's being, you know, more and more thrown around. And, and we kind of are grappling with the world that I, I'm really afraid that the corporates are going to take and then and then it's it's over. So it's it's so important to go back to some of the principles here. And we could talk about life's principles, but what you described is actually one of the many facets of regeneration, of always learning, always not necessarily reinventing oneself. But growing from the inside, getting excited, connecting with other things, that's also regeneration. You met, you've been talking about it for 20 years, but it just feels like there's like doors, Pandora's boxes, which are exciting to add to that as well. Well, it may be that we've collectively come to sense that we're at some tipping point here, that unless we go beyond sustainability, um, and to restoration of not only the natural world, but of our mental health, of our, you know, of our societal health, all of that, that, you know, we're, we're probably not going to make it long term on the planet. I mean, 
it's, you know, yet as much as we sense that to then move that into action and to move that into lived practice is something altogether different, right? Um, and so, again, I think that it's probably a good thing that more and more people are at least using that word and using that phrasing because it just it builds some consciousness around it and some understanding of it. But I agree with you. I mean, it will likely be co-opted by people who want to make money off of it and who want to define it for their own terms, right? I'm sure oil companies are going to be regenerative in some sense, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever, however they want to frame it, right? But I think that um, ultimately, to me, and again, I'm new to this, right? And I've, I've learned a lot from you and, and other folks in this conversation. But to me, that's one place where it feels like going backwards is probably better than going forwards, right? In terms of getting back to Aboriginal thinking about the world and about how we teach kids. Um, the idea of uh, the whole idea of lengthening our timelines um, so that we understand history, but we also push into the future further so that we get a longer scope. You know, we all kind of live 10 minutes in front of us, you know, and 10 minutes past. Um, so all of that, I think, feeds into this idea of, of regenerative thinking, regenerative living um, as as we audit our own lives and ask, well, what are our, you know, what are our impacts here? How are we? contributing to a lot of the things that we're trying to mitigate. And I think schools, just education in general, but schools in specific, need to do that kind of auditing and ask themselves, how are we contributing to the problems that we have? And once you identify that, then I think they can begin to think more regeneratively about, you know, well, not only fixing those habits or those practices, but then restoring what was or replenishing what what has kind of been taken away. So yeah, it's really interesting. And again, it's new for a lot of people. When we say, when we use that term, a lot of people are like, well, what do you mean? You know, what, what does that exactly mean? And I'm not hundred percent sure what that means, but I know that it starts with that question. You know, it starts with, all right, so what are we doing that contributes to the problems that we're having? And then let's take a look at how we can begin to change our practices and our philosophies in ways that contribute to the solutions and um, bring us, you know, bring us back what we've taken away or what we've kind of, you know, um, harmed in the past. And I think it's okay not to land on a definition. Definitions, of course, being definite and immovable, which is probably the contrary regeneration, which is a dynamic process. And when I listen to you, it's not just about the difference in time, but it's also the space. It's about the connection. So as Whereas before it might have been, what do students need to be successful? What do they want? What skills? But now the words that you're mentioning, it's like the connections that we have between each other with nature. It opens up a completely new space about what is it that we need, but who's the we? That's something that that can be looked at ways. Yeah. Now that's radical, and that's different from a test score for a kid. It's just contributing another word that you used um, to 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 something bigger than what we are as individuals. I do think that there is a certain level of shared language that is required, though, in all these conversations. I agree with you. I don't think that we need to make a hardcore definition of what it is, but that shared definition or that shared language can be just a sense of experience of what, you know, when you say that, this is what I see in my head. And we need to kind of all get 
on the same page. Uh, we're, we, we're working we're working with a group right now around agency, right? More agency for teachers and students. And one of the first things we had to do was, okay, well, what do you mean by that word, right? Let's let's make sure that that and and we do that by okay, let's let's tell some stories around what agency looks like in your vision. And let's make sure those stories are aligned in some way. So it's the same thing here, right? I mean, it's the same as, and again, it's that kind of let's get into the future. Let's think about schools that are regenerative or that are doing regenerative education. Let's let's make up some stories around what that looks like. And then we can share those stories and say, oh, yeah, okay, now we have a picture. And I'm really coming and Home and I are both coming to the um, conclusion, <laughs> which isn't anything earth shattering, by the way. But that it is story that drives a lot of this in terms of shared understanding that you can write the words out, but unless they're being lived in some way in people's minds, you know, in people's imaginations even. And and that collective understanding, that collective imagination of what agency, what is the aspirational experience of agency that we want unless we're telling that in stories it's still really hard for people to get a sense of what they're working toward so we're doing a lot of work with okay so let's tell stories of success 20 years from now what does that really look like you know let's make it up let's share those stories let's see how coherent they are let's see if we're on the same page and if not let's kind of negotiate that so that at least we get closer to a shared understanding of the success that we are aspiring to, right? And you know as well as I do. I mean, you can look at every just about every strategic plan, just about every mission statement. There's all sorts of stuff in there that people really, when you ask 10 people what that means, they give you 10 different answers. And that's no way to try to change anything, right? That's no way to be different or better. So, um, yeah, I think that that's a huge piece of the work right now is to make sure people are, I don't know if expanding is the right word, but pushing the box in terms of how they think about success or agency or any of those things, just getting out of the traditional way of thinking about it. But then really getting them to imagine, well, what does that really look like if you want it in its finest form, right? If, if, you, if, if it was the best that you could do, what would it look like? And I think once we have start having those conversations, the work gets a lot easier. It gets a lot more, again, coherent. And um, you make then decisions on a daily basis that you ask, does this get us closer to this aspirational vision that we have? And that's nevertheless different from a glossary at the back of the book that you can take around Connecticut, Georgia, and California, because everybody's story is going to be different. It's contextual. And, and, and yes, that's shared understanding for sure. And, and that coherence, you used twice or three times the word sense. So now we're going outside of this idea of thinking in our brains and sensing it. And sometimes that goes beyond words, but we have a shared understanding, even if we don't put it into words. We're together. We feel it together. Well, and I think that's what imagination is, right? When you're imagining something, you are sensing it in some way, right? And so I've actually begun doing some um, kind of guided um, imagination types of, you know, activities with even large groups. And what's really interesting is when I, I try to uh, try to ask them to, what does it feel like, you know, when you're in that space, what does it sound like? What does it smell like? You know, what, just, what are the colors? And, and I think people actually struggle 
with that with that sensing piece of it. But that's the most important thing because if you put yourself into a future or a um, a vision or whatever that you really want, that again you you I've been calling them irresistible futures, right? That they're irresistible. You you just every you just look at that and you go, I I have to get to that. I want that so badly that I'm going to do whatever I need to do in order to help us move in that direction. Um, I think that's when it becomes, and that sensing piece of it is what makes it more powerful. Um, you can you can write it again. You can write it out in words. You can take the words, put them into a picture in Mid Journey now, you know, and you can kind of come up with an illustration of what it might look like. But until you really feel it, and uh, I, I'll say what's been interesting is a couple of things that I've done have actually led people to tears um, because they feel an urgency for. Um, something in the future that they want, right? And and again, I'm not suggesting that's because I'm such a great facilitator. I'm suggesting it is because we don't do that very much. And so when we get into that space, it's kind of emotional, you know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, because the world is like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of chaotic right now. So if we can find a place in our minds where it's like, yeah, this is where I want to be. Um it does. It can elicit some pretty strong emotions. And that's another story that's different from what you hear from, say, I don't know, the World Economic Forum or or wherever that say it's very yeah. data driven. By the year 2025, such and such amount of jobs are going to do this and all that. All, all these facts that I mean, we haven't mentioned a single percentage, a single number, really. It's all about this imagination of what might be or what might not be. But what do we want to bring about? Because it's more than economics, you know, it, it, it's, I mean, some people are totally focused on economics still, obviously, and that jobs and, you know, whatever else these, this is, this is where you'll make the most money. And these are the skills you need to be most successful, quote unquote, in terms of, again, making money. But, but it, I think, again, we're coming to understand that it's more than that. And, and, and we, we may not even understand that on an intellectual level. But I think most people are starting to feel that just on a gut level. You know, there's something wrong with the way that we're leading the, our lives on the planet. Um, there's 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 a fundamental flaw in how we've organized a lot of this stuff. And again, we may not be able to say it exactly what the problem is, but we know at a gut level, I feel like that. Yeah, we can't keep doing this. We we have to figure out a different way. And so I think schools feel that acutely because they are responsible for the future in some way, in some form, right? I mean, the students who we're putting out into the world are going to make the decisions that um, are going to impact all of our lives, right? Um, depending on how long we live. But so, yeah, I think there's a, there's a pressure on schools now to think about these things and talk about these things because you can't just you can't just keep remixing the same recipe, you know, that's led us into a lot of the challenges that we have. Um, yeah. And, and I really do think that imagination and collective imagination, especially getting people together in groups to imagine together is one path forward to not only acknowledge the challenges that we have, but to then begin to figure out what we do about them. You know, and it, at least if we know what we want, where we want to get to, it makes it a lot easier to figure out what to do tomorrow. 
you know, instead of kind of aimlessly reacting to everything that happens in the world and just, um, you know, God, this happened. Now we got to do this, you know, instead of. Um, yeah. So anyway, again, I'm rambling, but I think you get the idea. And one of the hardest things about schools for any change is not just this, the bigger change management of, oh, you know, this is going to affect my worldview and so forth. But it's also the very granular, the fact that you can have a wonderful workshop, a wonderful experience, but then you go back on a Monday and you've got all the tidbits and the this and the that and the parents. How how do we work through this minefield of, of keeping people focused on that immediate future when they're dealing sometimes with the minute-to-minute -minute present? And I know that's a million-dollar question, but what are some <laughs> of your thoughts around it? Well, I think we can reduce the harm in a lot of ways in schools. You know, I think we can we can stop doing a lot of really stupid things that don't help our kids either as humans, as healthy people, or as learners. Um, and I know that, you know, I mean, in, in our little pregame conversation, you were talking about how good you lucky you felt that change was a lot easier, at least to to talk about and um, to maybe enact at your new school. But most schools aren't like that, right? Most schools um, need a lot of capacity building <laughs> in their communities before they can actually um, begin to take down the things that really aren't great about the, the experience that we provide kids, right? So I don't know, you know, I, I, I keep thinking the kids that started school this year are going to graduate in 2040. I mean, 2040, think of that, right? And um, are we really still going to be having kids in rows being graded by external you know, motive things that that really aren't internally um, motivating to them, and by you know what I'm saying, right? All these <laughs> kind of really stupid things we do in schools. Are we still going to be doing those in 2040? Um, is that is that really going to be the best experience we can provide to children to prepare them for that world? And I think almost universally, people in education will go, no, <laughs> you know, we can't keep doing that stuff, but. How you then begin to break it down is you you have to start these conversations. You have to engage in these conversations now. You have to you have to own the fact that you're doing a lot of stupid things in schools when it comes to the health of human beings and also uh, the health of the world um, uh, and also helping kids become learners. Um, so it's almost like, you know, the alcoholic. The first thing you have to do is admit you have a problem. Right. And so if we can get to that point doesn't mean we change everything overnight doesn't mean that you know it gets better or it gets different immediately but over time again if you if you know what your issues are and if you have an idea of something much different that would serve your children in in better ways then it makes it easier to start making those changes happen over time and it is that courage it's a moral courage it's a moral obligation when we really put it that this is the future or these are the futures we want to bring about and the decision making on the moment to moment happens will this contribute to us getting to where we might want to be without making a linear plan but does this feed me in a way that's healthy to get towards that place that that we've imagined together and that's the moment to moment decision making yeah, and it, you know, it speaks to I know something that you've been really interested in and introduced me to, which is you know having nature at the table, nature on the board. You know, I mean, how would schools be different if nature had a voting 
a voting, um, you know, uh, seat on the board uh, or as a trustee. I think it would be really different. Um, so you could you could kind of take that a little bit sideways and say, well, what if the future had a voting interest? What if what if children from 2050 had a voting interest in what you were doing today? How would that change things? And again, I think it would put things in a very different context because it's not just about the next three years for your three-year plan. It's not just, you know what I'm saying, right? And and that's where that really, that longer term visioning um, is so crucial right now. Um, one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years is The Good Ancestor. And um, talk a lot about that in there of, of how do you expand and, and again, a lot of Aboriginal cultures have been doing this, you know, for that's just part of how they see their lives. They think, you know, seven generations in the future. Right. So um, how do how can we build that muscle? And I think one way is to imagine what if what if 15 year olds in the year 2050 were sitting on your board right now, you know, what would you what would they say as much as we can kind of figure that out um what would what would they be be giving us in terms of feedback on the way the experience of schools that we're building for kids looks like right now i think it would be a fascinating kind of imaginative exercise in in my school we have something called a board of learners which involves um two students um who are who are on that board uh, to to teachers, to people from from parent community, there, there's there's that whole diversity, that the, the diversity um, of, of 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 voices, and this question of putting nature on on the on, on the board is is an absolutely fascinating one because then we're going not just for the human but for the more than human, and and what are those decisions? What do they look like? And I I just keep asking myself. Um, yeah, a lot, a lot of the questions that, that you brought up are, are piquing my interest about, gosh, 2040 is, 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 is a time when you and I are going to be well-retired probably, or we'll be working, we'll be working still. Yeah. But, but my, my, let's not, let's not put ourselves out to pasture too soon. But you know what I mean? Like, like people of our age, like we're, we're starting to, but, but it's okay to hand over as well yeah, to the sure. next generation. And this is a generation sure. that has absolutely no absolutely. idea what it's like to, to, to live without, without the technology. And yet we're making this decision of limiting screen time of, of, of making sure that we only use certain apps and, and things like that. And it just, that is absolutely mind boggling how, how we yeah. think, talk about this from this position of authority about how we should use screens for kids who, who are, who who use it just like they breathe for good and bad, of course. But well, and I think part of it too is, and I've been, you know, this is something we talked about for a long, long time. Is most schools are cultures of teaching; they're not cultures of learning, and so it becomes hard for the adults in the room to adopt or embrace new technologies or whatever, because their value is wrapped up in the teaching aspect. And that for most teachers who've been there for more than, you know, five or eight years, they're kind of like, well, I'm pretty good at this. I, this is what I do. This is the way it works. You know, I've got the power pretty much. They don't say it, but you know, I've got the power to decide what, when, how all that. Whereas if we were in learning cultures, 
I think you would have seen um, an even earlier embrace or at least um, acceptance of the impact of AI and other types of technologies like that. You know, a lot of schools at the beginning were like, no, 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 we're going to ban them. You know, it's, it, I think most schools have gotten over that and they understand that this is a huge shift in their practice. It's going to necessitate a really big rethink about pedagogy and all of that, right? Um, but if they were learning cultures, they would have seen this coming. They would have been like, oh yeah, let's get ready because, you know, and, and again, there are other technologies like this right now that are on the edges that if we're, if we're really learners and we're constantly engaging in what's happening in the world and on the edges, then we can, we can take that and say, we have to begin now to understand this, which is going to be here in five, seven, 10 years, whatever it is, right? So, but that's a learning culture. Teaching cultures rest on the past. Learning cultures are, I think, more, certainly more engaged in the present, but thinking more about the future, about how to evolve into the future, how to learn their way through the world, right? And so it's a, again, it's a, it's a huge shift in the way we think about the whole practice, the whole value system of teaching and educating in the context of a school. Let's talk about BQI. Um, uh, where are where are you as a learning culture? Where are you in terms of thinking about how you are going to be able to work with schools, work as a learning community, toward moving on and moving forward? What what are some of the things that you're developing without, of course, spilling the beans if you don't want them to be spilled? <laughs> well, you know, Home and I are really smart. We've taken a lot of the pressure off our, of ourselves by saying, well, we don't have any answers, <laughs> but we have a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> That's certainly one way of, you know, um, making making that path a little bit easier. No, but in all seriousness, I do. I mean, I, I just think that we, for whatever reason, when Home and I started this business like four years ago, it's only been four years, um, we both just kind of looked at it and said, you know, there's so much stuff going on right now um, that we don't have answers to. So let's let's just go there. Let's just start there. Um, and I think that, that again, um, what our work is more about than anything else is helping schools and organizations learn their way through whatever process they're in the middle of. Like we've done, we've done um, strategic planning with a very with large public school districts, with smaller international schools, private schools, it's always different, but it's always a learning experience. You know, it's not like a, okay, this is what we did last time. It's a, you know, a lot of the accreditation process too, that you see schools going through are kind of just checking boxes and, you know, yeah, we did this, this, we have a mission statement. We have a, but what we're trying to do is say, use that as an opportunity. You know, take it as an opportunity to really learn about yourselves and and we can help with that. And I think I think we've done a really good job with that. Um, I mean, we've gotten good feedback from people um, and we've we've got uh, quite a few schools that we're working with. But I do think, too, that um, I think I'm pulling us a little bit home. You know, the great thing about our relationship is we both kind of have our separate interests and and areas that we want to learn more deeply about. And yet they're you know, they overlap in some ways. But it's kind of like she pulls us in this way a little bit. I'll pull us in this way a little bit. So um, I think where I'm pulling us more is into this future space, this idea that 
um, we need to have a literacy as school communities as to a what's going on, how to how to discern what's really happening in the world. And you know, this is going to get more complicated as AI flourishes in the hands of um, ne'er do wells who want to you know throw more misinformation and disinformation out there in the world, right? And so um, the literacy is really around how can you discern truth and and discern who to trust and all of that stuff but more so even um how can you see the signals that are kind of weak signals maybe right now stronger signals but things that are happening in the world that are going to impact the arc of the future right and um how can you how can you build your muscles to do that kind of work where you're kind of scanning your scenario planning your your you're having regular conversations about what might be and who we who you want to be in that um, particular context i mean we look at it and it, more and more it just feels like the three or five year plan is kind of obsolete right i mean the whole idea i mean it's not a bad thing to exercise to do right but that the whole idea that you can just write up, you know, this is what the next three years are going to look like. And <laughs> you don't wake up one morning and there's a pandemic or there's a, you know, whatever else. Right. <laughs> it's like you have to be constantly engaging in these conversations and constantly visioning. It's like, um, yeah, it, it's not strategic planning. It's like strategic visioning almost as you go through a process of just kind of continually pushing a little bit further out. So I, I think that that's a really important part of that. So we're coming out, we're coming out with some, some services and some, some tools and some workshops and some, you know, professional learning around that, that will help build schools build their capacities to do that. Um, and to, um, to provide them with a kind of constant stream of curated resources um, that because there is so much right obviously um, and most of my time is spent reading and scanning and um, trying to maintain some understanding of what's happening in the world and again using like we said at the beginning using that lens then to see what those things mean in an education context so um, I, I, I think there's a need for that. There are a lot of schools that are floundering. They don't really know what's coming. They don't have a sense of what's important to keep an eye on right now. They don't have these conversations that are ongoing. They don't have capacity or practice or whatever. So a lot of our work now is starting to move toward helping schools do that. And um, I find it really interesting. I find it really fun. So I'm selfish that... <laughs> You know, I'll put that stuff out into the world because I love doing that. I love that imaginative practice. I love that kind of let's do oral futures. There's so many creative, fun things you can do now uh, within those contexts and playful, by the way, which is really important. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, we're we're uh, we're in a good spot and we 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 really love the work that we're doing and obviously hope we can do more of it. Listen, well, thanks so much for your time. I always enjoy talking to you and it's always so stimulating. So thank you. Yeah, likewise, anytime. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out, www.coconut-thinking.com. You can also check us out on Intrepid Ed, www.intrepidednews.com. 
And again, our website, not to throw too many URLs at you, is www.coconut-thinking.com. See you soon. Bye-bye.